Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a rare conversation between two of our TNS hosts, Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner, titled COVID-19 and Beyond, What Will the New World Look Like? This conversation was recorded from a Zoom webinar. Welcome to all uh, to our ongoing series of Friday morning webinars. Uh, you can always know that a Friday morning at nine o'clock, we're going to be here with somebody really interesting to talk to. Um, uh, this uh, conversation today is with my longtime friend and colleague, Steve Heilig. I will introduce him briefly here, or perhaps not so briefly, because the introduction uh, uh, takes a couple of minutes because it's really interesting. Um, Steve was educated at five University of California campuses in public health, epidemiology, medical ethics, addiction, economics, and environmental sciences. And his work has includes positions at the San Francisco Medical Society, California Pacific Medical Center, University of California, San Francisco, and as co-editor of the Cambridge Quarterly on Healthcare Ethics. He has been part of the Commonweal team for 25 years, working on many projects at Commonweal, including co-founding the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, and as a host of many conversations at the New School at Commonweal. He's authored many medical policies uh, at state and national levels uh, for the uh, San Francisco Medical Society and the California Medical Society and the uh, American Medical Association. And he was a Robert Wood Johnson Fellow on Drug Abuses Issues. He received the California Medical Association's Annual Award for Service to Medicine and Public Health. His work on legalizing choice at the beginning and end of life landed on the front page of the New York Times twice. And he has authored hundreds of articles and book reviews for many publications. He served as an editor of Surfing Medicine and the uh, indomitable Bolinas Hearsay News, and as uh, the head master of ceremonies at the Sierra Nevada World Music Festival. His undergraduate honors thesis was about the ever-growing threat of pandemics, and thus in these times, his interests have come full circle. Steve Heilig, welcome to the learning community in the new school. Thank you, Michael. Could I welcome you to the new school too? I mean, we are the two primary hosts for new school talks, so it's kind of interesting. This is like dueling hosts here. Um, <laughs> We've never done it together before. Right. <laughs> but um, Michael asked me to do this, and I, of course, wouldn't say no. So um, you want me to just go ahead, Michael? Yeah, please. Okay. So... Thank you, everybody, for signing in and uh, joining us today. I know there's many old friends and colleagues here, so I'm kind of intimidated by it because uh, I'm not going to be able to pull too many uh, quick ones on anybody here. But um, we're obviously in a very extreme and interesting time uh, for humanity um, and healthcare and maybe even civilization in some strange way. So. Michael wanted me to talk a little bit about um, 
why me, how I got here. So um, here, maybe we could show the first image there. There it is. So I found this um, old document <laughs> and um, I was a Southern California beach kid, not much of a scholar or a student, but very interested in a lot of things. And as mentioned, I jumped around from various UC campuses in the 1970s going to school, ended up with a few degrees in, in a bunch of different topics. But um, what really got me interested in this particular arena was this thesis that I did. And uh, this was at UC Santa Barbara. I wanted to stay there the rest of my life because I lived in a beautiful beach house in a beautiful place, but uh, you can't really do that. So there was a famous professor there named Garrett Hardin, infamous to some people. This one famous paper, most famous paper, was called Tragedy of the Commons, published in 1968 in Science, the journal. And uh, I convinced him to let me stay an extra year and do a thesis. And at the same time, I was working at the Student Health Center, where I was doing triage of patients to where they were supposed to go and as a lab tech. And seeing a lot of uh, drug resistance, antibiotic resistant uh, infections there. And I started reading about it and came up with this idea for a thesis about what will happen if these bacteria uh, become resistant to everything we have in terms of antibiotics. The antibiotic era only started in the 1940s. And it's, I'd say, without question, the biggest single development in human medicine in terms of the impact on people's health and has become threatened by the continuing Darwinian evolution of the bugs. So this one, you can kind of see the image there. It's a needle bending off of the arm. And I, I wrote this, it's almost a hundred pages long and it became uh, published and talked about a lot. And it's what really got me into graduate school because I wasn't that great of a student as an undergrad. I had too many majors and was too distracted. So I went on to um, study a lot more about this Traveled the world a bit after that, doing some work, but mostly just spending any money I'd saved. Came back to San Francisco, 1983, so 37 years ago. And what was happening then was the initial explosion of a new epidemic or pandemic that later became identified as HIV or AIDS. At the time, when it was first starting, we didn't really know what it was. There wasn't a name for it, didn't know how it was transmitted. And it was a very heady time uh, centered here in San Francisco, where there was a lot of fear about uh, how is it transmitted? Who's at risk? Is there going to be any treatment? Uh, because at the time, it seemed to be and was for quite some years, 100% fatal. So that's kind of the context for this. And Michael said, well, why don't we talk about any flashbacks you're having to HIV era and what you think is going on here? So I've stayed here in San Francisco all this time and worked on all the issues that Michael mentioned there. And um, when this hit, starting in uh, January, the COVID bug, um, it changed the entire focus of, of everybody's work here because we were in an emergency. And I, I remember very clearly we went at a meeting where our health officer, who is the number one public health doctor in, in any area in San Francisco, his name's Tomas Aragon, wonderful guy highly qualified and uh, just a, a great guy. Uh, and he said, I'm going to have to shut basically the city down and I'm going to need your support. He was talking to a large group of 
of physicians. And that's basically what happened. They say no uh, webinar is complete without a cat. So this is Charlie, sorry. <laughs> and um, since then, we've been dealing with this, uh, both in terms of the science and the medical response and the economic response as well. So we're in, a, as I say, an intense time. So let me do a little history here. And Kira, maybe we can see the next image. So here's a little handy chart about the history of pandemics. Um, start with a, a quote, though. First, uh, Joshua Letterberg, who was a renowned biologist, youngest, I believe, ever to get a Nobel Prize in medicine at age 33. And his famous quote is, the single biggest threat to man's continuous dominance on the planet is the virus, unquote. And there's a little interesting thing to say in there. Note the term dominance. So I'll come back to that. So Homo sapiens, that's us, um, has exploded in its, its numbers, our numbers, in the past 200 years. Went from 1 billion 200 years ago to edging up to 8 billion now, 200 years later. And this means that there are more and more people spread all over the planet in more and more crowded conditions. And our impact has gotten to the point where the new term that's being used in terms of geologic eras is the Anthropocene, which means that humans are the dominant impact on our planet in many different ways. But if you look at this chart here, you'll see that one of the dominant influences on us has been these pandemics through the years. Now, these are fuzzy numbers, of course, going way back in terms of uh, how many were impacted, how many died. But you can see as far as back we're measuring, this goes back to uh, you know, 1 AD, basically. Every once in a while, there's something very serious happening in various degrees. One of the interesting things about this, if you look back to uh, the first uh, half of it at least or more, they're basically or mostly all bacterial um, uh, infections. And then the more recent ones, including the current one and including HIV or viral. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic that's happening. We're seeing more and more viral breakouts, epidemics and pandemics uh, in this uh, modern era. And part of this, well, let's say a little more about the history. Um, if you Steve, let me, Steve, let me interrupt you there for a minute. Yes. Are you going to say why we're getting more viral as opposed to bacterial? Well, yeah. So let's, let's, okay. I mean, there's all kinds of ideas about that, but that's what I'm getting to is that the, okay, good. the spread is much more uh, rapid now in terms of crowding and travel um, that gets them around sooner. They also, HIV in particular, and now this new uh, COVID uh, have long latent periods at times where you can get, I mean, with HIV, it was decades where you can be infected and spread the infection without being sick yourself. Now with HIV, it could be a decade or more. Uh, with this, it's more like a matter of a week or two. Um, but that's a crucial element in these. Most bacterial infections, you get to know that you've got them fairly rapidly. Now, the other things that are, that's not in here, I don't believe, is uh, the endemic infections that we've lived with. Malaria, for example. Some historians of these diseases say that malaria has killed more 
humans than any other factor throughout our history. It's um, still killing half a million or more a year and uh, depends on where you live, et cetera. So some of them come and go. Uh, an outbreak like Ebola, which is very quickly lethal, tends to be localized. And unless people are really spreading around quickly, an outbreak of that will die out because people who have it all die. And it can be controlled, perhaps, and hopefully easier than some of these others. Uh, if you look at this chart, too, some people will say that these outbreaks have killed more humans than any wars. Uh, the most recent big example being the 100 years ago uh, Spanish influenza outbreak, which happened right towards the tail end of World War I. And some or most historians say that it actually killed a lot more people than the war did. As humans spread around the world, too, they brought these uh, various infections with them. So the same dynamic, if you look at the New World, North and South America, consensus is, is that the infections that the colonialists brought killed many more people than any of their actual actions in terms of war and so forth, as bad as those were. So clearly these uh, bugs are and viruses are extreme influences on our history. And that's not going to go away, as Dr. Letterberg said and as many others have said. There's been warnings, uh, extreme warnings for many years that we are vulnerable due to travel and other uh, crowding our modern agricultural system and decimation of rainforests and all kinds of things. And now, in particular, climate change, which is uh, lending itself to travel of, of these uh, infections as well. So the ones that we're talking about, the current one, uh, is what is known as a zoonos, zoo being the first word, first part of that word, which means comes from animals. Uh, and that is a dominant type of infection that's happening now as well, too. There have been uh, the more recent ones, such as SARS and things like that, have been traced back to animals. It's still fuzzy exactly where this one came from. There's a lot of competing theories about, uh, you know, the wet markets in uh, China, et cetera, and what kind of animal. We don't need to get into that. It's actually become politicized, of course, like everything else here. But the, uh, the hallmark of it, the really important part, is that uh, it has a asymptomatic transmission period in that you can get infected yourself and not have any symptoms. And it could be pre-symptomatic as well. Even if you're going to get sick, you're still transmitting even... And asymptomatic means you never really get seriously ill, but you're still transmitting the virus. And then the question of its lethality, how dangerous it is. Um, if you look at the first, it's very interesting. In January, it was one of the first alarms raised about this in an international sense. A Harvard epidemiologist wrote a post looking at the bug itself and how lethal it might be. And the title of his post was, quote, holy mother of God, unquote. Now, he seems to have overestimated the lethality of it as, as over 3% uh, for all infections. But the, the message was is that this, this was a very dangerous virus that was going to be spreading very fast. Turned out he was right, at least on that. So UCSF, which is right over, right over there, um, has been hosting really great 
medical grand rounds for the last couple of months where they spend a couple hours with great experts on all the aspects of COVID. Um, and I have, you know, they're don't miss for me. I've been watching them uh, every Thursday and they tend to bring up speakers on a lot of different topics, but there's at least four that are really crucial to at least mention um, in terms of what the research they're doing and on in terms of what's going on and trying to improve things. The first one is the testing issue, of course. And you've seen probably a lot about this in terms of how to use it, um, what it's valuable for. Unfortunately, and, and I'm maybe a little more skeptical than some, but judging from yesterday's uh, talks about this too at UCSF, the tests are still not so great uh, overall. Uh, they, you can, depending on what tests you can use, and one of the problems is that they were flooding the market. All these commercial companies flooded the markets with 40, 50, 60 different uh, testing products with highly variable accuracy. You can get either or both false positives, which means you get a test that says you've been infected, but you're not, or a false negative, uh, which is the opposite, it means that you are infected and you, the test says you're not. So that's a big problem, of course. But going beyond that, the question is, what do you do with the test results? Now, for public health tracking, epidemiology, and contact tracing, the kind of things that, that we do, these will be very important, assuming some accuracy in them. For individuals, they don't tell you that much in terms of what you can do because there is not uh, effective treatment per se. There's not an indication on how, if you have been infected, how what your chances of getting seriously ill are. And the big question here is about immunity. Is uh, if you've had it, how immune will you be after that? Uh, yesterday's talk, at least at UCSF, at least had more optimism that being infected will confer immunity because that's been a real question. Not all bugs or infections confer immunity. And the, the speakers yesterday said, we're pretty sure it will, at least for a year or two. So that's going to be very important uh, because the antibody tests, one of the types of tests that are out there, that's what they're measuring is if you have developed uh, antibodies that will help you from, keep you from not getting infected. Uh, treatment issues are very rough. Uh, they had two speakers on yesterday, docs who went from UCSF to New York. This is where we get into the tale of two cities. So New York, I'm sure you've all heard, was hit very hard and still is hit very hard by this. Probably a lot of reasons for that. It got there early, but also if you, anybody who's been to Manhattan knows how crowded it is on the streets, on the subways, uh, in the buildings. And it really got around there and they did not uh, shut things down quite as soon as uh, many people believe they should have. So the hospitals there, some of them became overwhelmed. and They put out a call for volunteers and for help and for equipment, which they didn't have. These two physicians that came back and reported yesterday um, were very uh, committed, even noble about it. They said, you know, it was horrible, but this is what we signed up to do. Um, but one of them said, what I learned was great humility because we really couldn't do much of anything. We could try to comfort people and try to keep them breathing as long as we could. But uh, you could tell, and these were ICU physicians who are used to people in extreme uh, negative uh, health status. So 
inspiring to hear them, but also daunting to see what has happened there in New York City. Now, out here on this coast, uh, we did shut down early, as I mentioned. People have been monitoring uh, the reports from physicians and particularly hospitalizations, which is the measure of severe disease, of course. And there's a weekly call with all the hospitals that I'm on as well, where everybody reports in what's going on and really leveled out a few weeks ago in terms of people coming to the hospitals. Everybody was ramping up uh, for a real flood of patients, including even putting tents out front of the hospital to try to triage people so you weren't taking in too many and try to get them elsewhere. And then a topic that Michael and I think we'll talk about, there was a rapid trying to develop policy and guidelines for what do we do if we have to ration care, particularly ventilators and ICU care. Uh, fortunately, none of that has been needed, and most of the hospitals have remained at about half of their normal overall census, and that's because all the other procedures uh, have been shut down. And then a gradual rise, but then a leveling off of COVID cases. And other than certain instances and certain times, uh, there hasn't been a need, an overflow in the ICUs, and there hasn't been a need for all of this ramping up. We were hoping to do the surge, it was called. And people have actually been sent home that were brought in to uh, uh, prepare for this. So it's a very interesting thing. And we think this is, you know, we don't know what would have happened otherwise, but I think it's pretty clear that this is so far a success story overall. Now, if you look at specific populations, it's a little more complicated and uh, frightening because in populations such as some of the long-term care facilities, uh, retirement homes, or retirement hospitals even, um, jails, homeless population, and some of the more crowded uh, communities, such as in the Mission, you're still seeing a lot more cases. And this is part of this whole picture is since the virus seems to hit much harder in older people, and it's seeming to be now, we're seeing a higher lethality or at least severity in ethnic communities as well. Particularly, it's measured so far what it's looking like, both Asian and uh, Latino communities. So that's something to really consider. And then you may have seen recent reports too about Native American communities, including uh, the reservations, being hit very hard by this. So we're really at the beginning of that, and uh, responding to all of that. Um, the other, one of the other big uh, problems of this brings up another quote, which uh, the original quote was, in war, the first casualty is truth. Well, it seems to be true in epidemics as well. What we've been seeing here is a tremendous amount of misinformation. A lot of it, hopefully most of it, inadvertent. People are just scrambling to find out what's going on in terms of treating themselves, but also how it spread, where it came from, but also a tremendous amount of conspiracy theories and things like that. Now, we don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but a lot of this is, if not originating, is spread by certain politicians. You probably don't need to be named right now. We may get into that. It's a tragic time where, where we need leadership more than any other time. We don't really have it at the federal level. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control would be like the lead agency on this. They've been sidelined, decimated, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so what we're seeing is even what the, the World Health Organization just called a tsunami of hatred, of bias uh, against particularly Asians who were blamed for this. And that's another bit of a flashback to the HIV era. When that first came out, when we were first exploding, people were blaming anybody they could think of, but it was particularly the gay community, Haitians for a while, and drug users for spreading this. Um, and we're in this period of time where that uh, seems to be endemic, which is you know the term for, for when a, uh, an infection becomes just part of permanent or at least long-term part of the community. So there's a lot of questions about how well we can talk about more when Michael and I talk about masks, how to use them and what is, what's useful um, and so forth. But I'll, I'll wind up with just, oh, we could, you know, Kira, you want to show the next one? I sh we could have before. I think everybody's seen it. There's the virus. It's almost pretty, isn't it? It's a strange thing. So I think you've seen that before. And the next one, please. So this is the, the topic that uh, I'll end with is speculating a lot on what this is going to mean for humanity and our planet. I confess to some discomfort with this because what I've seen a lot of, as much as I like it, is a lot of uh, speculation about how the end result of this pandemic is going to be very positive for humanity. Um, that's hopeful. Uh, it's possible in the long run in some ways. But most of what I've seen, and you may have seen, there's a, a beautiful video out of a, a guy that came from England, I think, explaining to his young child about what happened and how we came through this and how it uh, was a net positive. And it's really great to watch. It's moving, but it kind of ignores the great carnage and suffering that takes to get there if, if that's where we're going. So I was trying to think about what are the, uh, the silver linings if we have them out of this. And the one that is being mentioned the most is the ecological one. It's fascinating to see with climate change being the biggest single threat to uh, humanity right now and the rest of the species as well is the significant decline in CO2, particularly in China. Uh, from shutting down the economy, basically. And we'll see much more about uh, what happens from the United States as well. So somewhere between 7 and 10% decline just from the, just in the first few months. You know, it's an amazing decline that is actually remarkably similar to what people are recommending, what needs to happen for us to arrest the uh, climate catastrophe. Now, the big question, of course, is, is that going to be sustainable once the economies start opening up again, assuming they do? Um, so that's one possible positive outcome. Another one is related to, I think, other species in a sense. Um, obviously, they'll be profoundly impacted if we are able to arrest climate, but also just the idea of these markets that have been identified as a basically a starting point for a lot of viruses. Those are being looked at now very carefully and even shut down. They're called wet markets mainly because there's so much ice there to keep the animals and fish and everything cool. But these are breeding grounds for all kinds of pathogens. And they're also horrible places for the living animals that are there. So as an animal lover, I see there's a possible positive there, and it may extend to 
slaughterhouses and uh, markets for meat and animals around the world, including in our own country. Um, you may see an increase in vegetarianism, for example. The other thing that's interesting, just on a side note to the animals, is the adoption of pets, of animals from shelters has skyrocketed. So people want companions at home and everything. So that's a good thing, too. Um, more from the professional field, public health is hopefully going to be seen as crucial. The whole history of public health is that it's the poor stepchild of medicine. And there was a great piece by Lori Garrett, the famous uh, healthcare journalist in the New York Times recently, an op-ed. And she talked about going to Harvard and seeing the medical center, which is this big, gleaming, beautiful uh, palace of science and medicine, and then going out to the School of Public Health, which is a dump. And I laughed out loud when I read that because that was exactly, I was going to go there. I went there to uh, check it out uh, way back then. And the School of Public Health out on Huntington Avenue was just, I mean, it was gloomy and uh, decrepit almost. So I saw that as a reflection of, you know, we focus very much on cure medicine, which is a great thing. But prevention in public health has always been shortchanged. And hopefully that will get some attention and perhaps change. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. Within medicine itself, there's been a movement for at least a decade or more uh, for palliative care, which is taking care of people when you cannot necessarily cure them, but you want to minimize suffering and do your best for them. And that's the kind of model that is for COVID right now. There is a lot of people in medicine learning how to do some forms of palliative care now because of this infection, because in the extremes, when they're in the ICUs, et cetera, they can't do much else, as was mentioned uh, earlier by the uh, physicians who came back from New York. So this may push that along too. Um, science itself is exploding in, in terms of this uh, responding to this epidemic. There have already been 30,000 published papers on COVID in the first three months of this year. It's astonishing, really. And the identification of the virus so quickly is a big contrast to what happened with HIV, where it took a long time to figure out exactly what that uh, agent was. This time it's moving much faster, whether it moves fast enough to get treatment and a vaccine is still to be seen. Those are very complicated uh, tasks and a vaccine uh, is of course the gold standard getting a working vaccine, but the consensus so far is that's going to take a fair amount of time. It could be a couple of years, I think, which would be nice. Actually, it would be faster than most, but um, Maybe, who knows, they'll make some breakthroughs and get there sooner. Um, the interesting thing, too, is that we're having perhaps overall, that's what this image is, a, a reprioritization of what is essential. It's a word that's being thrown around. Essential businesses, but essential people, essential uh, professions, healthcare people, of course, but a lot of others. We're seeing a, an appreciation for people who produce and deliver food. One of the great ironies right now, at least in California, I don't know if it's uh, broader, is that uh, our farm workers have been deemed essential. Now, many of you know, they have also for many years been deemed illegal, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think it's quite ironic that all of a sudden people are realizing, you know, we really need these people to provide a service. And other just frontline providers of all kinds of services really are being seen as more important now. So... Myself, 
I try to contribute how I can. I was able to acquire 15,000 masks because PPE or personal protective equipment for clinicians has been in great shortage. Some of that is due to bad planning. Some of that seems to be bad policy from the federal level on down. But uh, I've been distributing these out of my garage to any clinicians that need them. And they are extremely grateful to be able to get these without having to wait for long, uh, for indefinite periods and not able to get them. Uh, A doctor from one of our large hospitals who wasn't able to get any broke down crying in my driveway recently, uh, saying, you have no idea how important and how grateful we are for this. So that feels good. Other things I recommend to people, if you're looking for some way to help, the biggest uh, focus that I've had in terms of just giving um, is to food banks, et cetera, because there's a risk of, there's, there's enough food out there, and there always has been in a ways, but when you shut down restaurants and hotels and everything, you end up with surpluses, actually, but it's getting it to people who really need it is the big issue. So food banks, wherever you are, are very crucial. Um, I recommend supporting them if you can. They always have been, but even more so now. If you can be a blood donor or a blood product donor, do that as well. Uh, the blood banks have seen uh, a decline in some ways due to fear of going there. But one of the things that the uh, researchers are really looking at is actually using blood products, particularly plasma, from people who have been infected as a treatment. Um, so that's always a good thing to do anyway, of course. But again, we are seeing that it is more important than ever. Did I have one more image there, Kira? Yeah, so this is actually just down the hill from where I sit right now in the Haight-Ashbury. This is a uh, young doc going to work up at UCSF uh, with one of the boarded up stores. The graffiti there, which says, we will survive, we will get by, is actually quoting from the Grateful Dead. Uh, It was their one hit, Touch of Grey. Uh, So it's not surprising that this appears in the Haight-Ashbury, but there is this hopeful message. And uh, I think you're going to have an endemic bug here for a long time. It's going to depend a lot on much better leadership. We could say perhaps, judging from political trends right now, we may get a change in in leadership uh, at the end of this year, in part due to this uh, pandemic and the lack of good response to it. So there's a couple more touchy topics that uh, Michael, I know, wants to talk about and we can talk about, but I'm going to end there with the uh, lecture part of it. And then we can talk a bit, Michael, you and I, I believe, and then later on, we'll open it up to others. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Steve, so much. That's a wonderful introduction. I'm just going to read uh, a few of the um, comments in the chat. From Shelley Rodriguez, my first day working for San Francisco Medical Society, November 1984, included a board of directors meeting where Merv Silverman announced he was closing the bathhouses in San Francisco. What an amazing introduction to medical association and physician physician public health leadership. Uh, Brian Baird said, can you comment on the experience in Sweden, whether that model would work in the U.S.? Catherine Dodd said, my concern about the picture is that it's a man who is repressing the reset. It's time for women, the mothers, and the healers to reset. Uh, And then uh, Robert Gould, our friend and colleague, wrote, an unfortunate consequence beyond the racism, et cetera, mentioned by Steve, uh, by Trump administration demonization of China, 
is the negative impact on developing the global collaboration needed for dealing with global warming. Moving in the opposite direction is the use of this crisis to bolster confrontation through increasing military nuclear budgets and programs, as recently published in the New York Times. Um, uh, I should say, uh, Dr. Gould is, uh, has been president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, PSR. He's a, an old friend and colleague and a very committed right. advocate for public health and so forth. Uh, John Hall writes, Costa Rica is doing a lot of research in the use of plasma, the same group here that is famous for developing antivenous is doing this work. Recovered COVID patients are donating plasma and they'll be using this as a treatment beginning in June. Uh, so those are just some of the uh, comments. But well, let uh, me let me just say yeah. um, the uh, I like Catherine Dodd's comment. You know, there's actually been the observation that the nations that have responded most forcefully and successfully so far are all, or at least mostly, led by women. Absolutely, uh, New Zealand, Absolutely. et cetera. So yeah. I think that's yeah. true. The yeah. Sweden issue is a really interesting one and very divisive. Uh, they have basically done a much less extreme shutdown with the idea that they can get herd immunity to this, which means you have at least a critical number and it's uh, anywhere 80, 90 percent of people that are immune. Basically, it's a big gamble they're taking um, and they feel confident to take that because partly because Sweden has a trust in their government, in healthcare systems, national healthcare, and a lot more in place that they can respond to this. But even in Sweden, it's very controversial because it seems to be that their numbers are going up much faster than in other places. Uh, and the poorer people in Sweden, which they do have, are, are inordinately impacted. And I can just tell you, I have some dear old friends who are both physicians trained in Sweden. Uh, and they say this is something they have had to agree to not talk about at the dinner table because uh, one of them supports it and one of them is absolutely opposed. So um, that's something that remains to be played out, how that's going to work. So, Steve, let me ask you this uh, a genuine question without valence. If it's true that this virus will ultimately reach 70% or so of the population, if it's true that uh, social isolation and so forth is a way of flattening the curve to enable uh, hospitals and so forth to be able to cope with it, uh, then um, uh, it seems to me that in addition to the Sweden question, uh, we have to ask what the price the global south and poor people everywhere are paying uh, to enable those who are able to socially isolate to do so. Uh, because as we all know, COVID has resulted in a global recession, may well be a global depression. And for hundreds of millions of people, this means um, getting food, having work um, is, is just a profoundly serious issue. We, we hear reflections of this in the United States. So my question is, if it's going to spread, if it's endemic, if it's going to spread, I understand the argument that, well, maybe in the next few years we'll get a vaccine, maybe in the next few years we'll get better treatment. 
but we both know that not only is it going to be a couple of years before we get a vaccine at best, but it will take a lot more time to amp that up so that everybody can actually get the vaccine. So you are an ethicist. Uh, what are the ethics of um, trying to close down the global economy, uh, fractured and terrible as it is for the environment and everything else, at enormous cost to poor people everywhere, and the global south in particular, in the service of what medical ethics tells us to do, as opposed to global public health ethics, uh, of trying to save everyone we can who is able to do social distancing and so forth? Uh, simple question, right? Right. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, that's the big question. So any policy in any realm is a trade-off, basically, is a calculation of risk and benefits. And this one is extremely difficult because it's very hard. I mean, one of the dictums in public health is that if you succeed, nothing happens. Right. So it's very hard to measure what would have happened otherwise. And, uh, I mean, I, I agree that the uh, both in terms of the economics, but even in terms of health impacts, if you look at what happened in 2008 with the crash, you had a real spike in health problems, including suicide, uh, due to the economic impact of that. And we're likely to see that to some degree here as well. So <clears throat> the the perspective that you look at it through Depends. I mean, it determines a lot on what you think is the right thing to do. And so I agree that the people who are healthcare professionals, public health professionals, are very clearly focused on trying to minimize healthcare harms. Um, you talk about the global south and otherwise, they are just seeing that you don't even know what's happening there, but it looks like they're going to have, uh, in a lot of places, Africa, South America, Asia, uh, tremendous carnage from this bug. I mean, this virus, keep calling it a bug, that's bacteria. Um, but, you know, I don't have an answer for that. I think what we need to do and what people are leaning towards now and trying to do is to minimize the, you know, in reopening a bit to minimize uh, the impacts of the infection itself spreading more and the economics. So it's partial and careful reopening. What I fear and what the what people in healthcare fear, it's it's less the HIV model it is is the uh, Spanish influenza model. You look at what happened then, it's if you were look at where we are right now, they had the outbreak, they did a lot of shutdown, they had the mandatory mass and things like that. They reopened in the summer, and the impact in the fall was much bigger than it was in the spring. They had an explosion then. That's where most of the people died and were infected. We could very much have that same scenario. So, you know, it's a tough one. And I'm glad I'm not the uh, mayor or something like that of cities like here where you're tr trying to walk that fine line to find a middle path where you can minimize infections and hopefully open up the economy more. I have friends here who are now, you know, hand to mouth, unemployed, et cetera, et cetera. The stores are shut and all of that. And it's, uh, it's tough. I agree. I don't have an answer for that. But I think there is a middle path that we need to, to be on and we can do 
it's not nothing's going to be no harm, but it's going to be minimized. You know, um, other countries I can't speak to. I think that they're earlier on in this, and uh, it's going as with HIV, for example, it's going to be really rough. Have uh, any of the lectures that you've listened to or anything that you've heard gotten more precise on uh, genetic variance in uh, susceptibility? Uh, when Because you read that people really haven't figured out why some countries seem to be getting hit much harder than mm-hmm. others. Uh, and you talked about the Latino, Asian American, Asian American, Native American, and uh, you didn't mention, but obviously the black communities have been very hard hit. Uh, to what degree do people think uh, that's about genetic variants? And to what degree is it a matter of social uh, class and a, or just of crowding and of all the people who don't have the luxury to do uh, self-isolation and so forth? Well, I haven't heard anything definitive about that, of course, but um, I, you know, with most diseases, there is a genetic component in terms of susceptibility, but I have a feeling the latter factors that you mentioned uh, are going to be much more important and already are. But you know, it's not just uh, crowding, et cetera, but it's access to care right. uh, and things like that as well. The, in the city here in San Francisco, I mean, you're very aware, they did a, recently a project this was reported on yesterday by the UC researchers. So they did a testing project in Bolinas and they did a testing project in the Mission District of San Francisco to kind of compare and contrast. And uh, as you know, the tests in Bolinas brought up no positives, although, again, there's questions about the accuracy of that. And in the Mission, they had quite a few and a lot of people who were not aware and still not wearing masks and living in multifamily homes where they cannot isolate. So those kind of factors are huge. And uh, I thought you were going to say when you're talking about genetics, the virus itself, that's something I was going to mention is mutations, a big deal with these pathogens in terms of whether they are susceptible to treatments, to antiviral medications and everything. This one does seem to be, so as far as I know, mutating uh, to change, but nothing significant yet or even expected in terms of it being uh, no longer detectable or treatable. So most most of these pathogens don't mutate to become more lethal. They actually will less do less over time. But this one, they're optimistic that it's not going to change so much that they cannot you know, keep doing the research to control it. So that's a different issue, but genetics as well. I want to come back to uh, the question of whether the global South had a vote in this decision about how to approach um, the virus. Uh, because, um, you know, for very good reasons, uh, the developed countries and wealthy people everywhere who are able to uh, shelter in place and do social distance and so on, uh, made the decisions that the medical and public health communities in the developed countries have recommended. So. There's no question about that. The question is, uh, you know Singer's work at Princeton, the pragmatic philosopher. What is his first name? Do you remember? Peter. Peter, Peter Singer? Yeah. So uh, he's, he's a remarkable man, you know, an ethicist for animals and so on. But he holds the position as a pragmatic philosopher 
that every life is of equal value. And so the philanthropy that he set up in his website called The Life You Can Save focuses on Africa because his position is that you can save many more lives for the same dollar in Africa than you can in the United States or anywhere else. Well, not everybody takes that philosophical position. But if you take the position, which is not an inappropriate one, particularly because so many of us here, Robert Gold and others, have been talking about we're making you know the elderly and low-income people expendable. But if we if we take that not at the national level, but at the global level, then authentically, what are the ethics of a decision to protect wealthier countries and wealthier people at the price of closing down the global economy, which is simply going to cause hundreds of millions of people to starve? And I haven't seen that covered very well. And I'm just curious, I mean, you are an ethicist. So how do you think about that, not only with respect to the United States, where it's more compassable, but with respect to how, when history looks at this, uh, we will see the ethics of that choice? Well, unfortunately, ethicists are known for uh, raising lots of questions without answers. <laughs> but, right. um, you know, what I, I don't think that most of the nations, I mean, obviously, it's the impact of the shutdowns in the, the, the bigger Western or the developed nations is huge and it, it, it impacts everything worldwide. Right. But a lot of the, you know, the nations are not being told what they have to do. Uh, they, they are making their own decisions. And so you see, Places where they have, uh, like you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil and uh, Duterte in the Philippines, they're, they're saying, no, we're not going to do this. Um, and we'll see what the impact of that is, really. These are, not, these are people that uh, are similar to our own uh, current leader in, in some ways in terms of the you know, distrust of, of expertise and being told what to do. So, you know, we, we're setting the uh, example not telling them what they have to do. But again, you're right. The, the shutting down of the major industrial nations to some degree has an impact worldwide. You know, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I really don't. I, I, um, I, I, my idea, my hope is that the temporary shutdown would interrupt the explosion of the pathogen. And then you bring it back gradually. I think that's right. what we're trying to do. Right. That's but I mean, just pursuing this a little bit, because I, I just think it's so fundamental. Uh, if 70% of the world population is going to get it anyway, right? Something like that. Who knows? But some number, that's the number. Uh, and that may or may not confer herd immunity. But as we've said, it's likely to become endemic. Right. Then, uh, uh, the, the, then the argument for social isolation and uh, so forth is a flattening the curve argument. And um, so the, the, the deep question for me is, yes, we flatten the curve, and that's invaluable to all of those who were able to stay alive and maybe they will get uh, vaccines or better treatments, uh, but it's not gonna make the virus go away. So to me, and again, I don't have an answer to this either, uh, the Global South issue is just a really, deep ethical challenge to the whole the whole thing 
Well, it's true. And a lot of it is about protecting the most vulnerable in whatever ways we can. Right. Um, you know, we mentioned that it tends to be for older people, but one of the misperceptions that came out early is that younger people and even children were not impacted, but that's turning out to not be true. Not to be true. Less vulnerable than older people, but not true. And even infants now here at San Francisco General, they're getting some new reports on all kinds of new uh, symptoms and and, uh, pathologies related to this virus, which attacks the whole body. So yeah, I, you know, I don't have an answer for that, but I think one thing you wanted to talk about, Michael, too, was um, we were talking about the value of a life. And so in these calculations, our nation and economists and politicians for many years have struggled to put dollar values on lives, you know, Um, and it's fluctuated widely through time of what is a human life worth because they're trying to measure the cost benefit of any policy, whether it's healthcare or something else. Uh, but the tacit recognition there is that some people are going to be sacrificed um, in some ways. So there we are. But one of the things that you and I had talked about a fair amount early on, bring it to a little more micro level in the hospital, is what do you do when you don't have the resources to save everybody? And the initial response on the, you know, the need on this was ventilators in particular getting people in the ICUs, are there going to be enough ventilators and how do you you make sure there are enough? But the kind of second thought on that was, wait a minute, should everybody be put on a ventilator? Um, This gets into the medical ethics side of things is, you know, uh, is that the best uh, response to this? Now, if you'd talk to older, older docs about, vents where you have a tube in your throat, they've, they've called it biting plastic. And if the, the uh, surveys of uh, medical people on a number of these kind of topics through the years have been remarkable in showing that most clinicians are much less likely to want a lot of these kind of interventions than the general public, you know, um, because they know what it's like and how successful it is or is not. So one of the first things, the first efforts that started in January was we were working on a policy through Sutter Health, California Pacific, for the state on rationing of ventilators. And there's been a lot of commentary about this, is how do you choose who gets them or who doesn't? And uh, many of these policies have been developed and implemented in various places, um, but they involved making tough decisions based on not only, well, based on how likely the person was to survive and be weaned off of a ventilator, but also uh, things like their age. Um, So let's say you have a full ventilator unit and you've got two people uh, who are needing them. uh, And one is a 35 year old mother of two, a teacher or something, and one's 75 and uh, not likely to survive. What do you do? And clinicians themselves have never wanted to make these kinds of decisions. I'll just say that the, most of the policies, rec- policies recommend a team of people to recommend to the docs, as we do with ethics, ethics consults already. But really what this has brought up for a lot of us is the need that we've talked about for many years is many more people need to specify what they do or do not want towards the end of life. Advanced directives, healthcare directives in particular. You can only really do that if you have a good picture on what these interventions really do. And the evidence is that ventilators are a lot less effective in terms of 
getting people off of them. And even if you do successfully wean somebody off of a ventilator, you often have a lot of problems afterwards relating to having been on that. So I think maybe one of the good things that will come out of this is that we might get a lot more attention towards people really looking at this and uh, documenting what their wishes are. Because most people, if you really show them what it means, would say, I don't want that. That's right. Well, you and I have been in deep conversation about this. I just want to say your cat made a second appearance in the window and somebody said on Rachel Remen's conversation earlier, it's not a webinar until the cat shows up. So (laughs) it's a webinar. The cat has showed up. That's Charlie. uh, Joyce posted a, uh, we're getting a lot of good posts, but a, an article by Peter Singer, who we were just talking about, when will lockdowns be worse than COVID-19? So I, I can't pull that up without disturbing, but I'll look at it later because we will distribute the chat to everybody who was on the call. That is but, the big question. Cost yeah, benefit. exactly. Uh, but coming back to ventilators, um, in a smaller group that you or I are on, I raised the report out of New York that 80% of the people on ventilators didn't make it. And then we got some feedback from people in San Francisco and actually up in Vancouver saying, I think we've learned a lot and the numbers look much better. Uh, But then, as you point out, a lot of clinicians, I mean, it's heavy duty. You get sedated first, and then, you know, you're on this thing. And, uh, and if the probability is fairly high that you're not going to live or going to have heavy duty, uh, you know, complications later on, as you point out, a lot of clinicians wouldn't want it. And so what I've said to you and others is that I have three questions about this. The first one we've addressed, which is the question of, of the ethics of uh, the close down that Peter Singer apparently addresses in that uh, article. The second uh, one is um, one we haven't mentioned yet, which is that the mainstream people do not talk about what integrative health promotion can mean in order to increase internal resilience. And uh, we have a a earlier conversation with uh, Dr. Cynthia Lee, who's an expert on that, uh, and also on the Commonwealth web page, we have a, uh, a whole collection of the uh, uh, places where serious people are indicating that intensive health promotion supplements, better sleep, and the like uh, increase immune resilience and may, uh, number one, make it more likely that you don't get it, and number two, if you get it, make it uh, more likely that it won't be severe. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. So first is the ethics for the Global South. Second is intensive health promotion. And the third, which we've just been discussing now, is uh, how many clinicians and physicians wouldn't choose this for themselves. And so from my point of view, there is a huge issue about the denial of effective access to uh, end of life, uh, to humane, compassionate end of life uh, uh, care. Um, If you can't get yourself to a hospital or if you don't want to go to a hospital because you'd prefer to 
uh, do this at home and take your chances and die uh, in a place and in a way that is of your choosing. And in that instance, we talked about the compassion and care legislation, which is a wonderful or at least controversial, but still wonderful piece of work, but it's way too slow for a virus that moves like this. We talked about hospice uh, being able to get you medicines really quickly, and some good hospices can do that, but it's still a challenge. Uh, we've talked about uh, 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 going to the hospital and, and getting not ventilation, but compassionate care. And then I've raised the question of the ethics and trade-offs involved in uh, just denying people in general access to uh, compassionate ways to end their life under extreme circumstances. So anyway, those are, to me, the set of issues uh, that this conversation and this whole set of questions has raised for me. Well, I was going to mention Cynthia Lee's talk that you did with her just last week, too. Um, right. It's really great. And her, her she actually has a document online that is the kind of guidelines for what she looks at. And, you know, this is evidence-based to the highest extent possible. So. Right. Um, commend that to people in terms of just That's your own CynthiaLeeMD.com and then well, you I, click on our publications and yeah, uh, you'll get a really nice ebook that talks about how you can protect yourself. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, segueing into the uh, basically it's the choice and dying issue you're talking about in a, in a sense of uh, when, when you're not going to recover and you're trying to avoid needless suffering, and it's not a question of you know years, but probably shorter time. Do you get access to whatever means you need? I think, as you know, some of the other people here know, I was actually I was steeped in this uh, back in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Again, there was uh, no good treatment. There were a lot of uh, patients who were very clear that they did not want to suffer needlessly, and were trying to find ways to get access to basically physician-assisted dying or doing it themselves. Um, I was uh, involved in this for 20-something years. Uh, the, in California, the uh, State Medical Association was the block to legalizing it here. Uh, the ethics on this go back, back to Hippocrates, Hippocratic Oath, which actually hardly anybody takes anymore. They take updated uh, version of that partly due to this issue, but the Hippocratic Oath said, thou shalt not ever help a patient die ahead of his time, basically. Um, a lot of question about where that came from, but it has maintained itself all the way up to now. The AMA says the same thing. The CMA here in California, the largest state medical association, adhered to that as well and would block any effort, whether legislative or initiative, to change the law to make it permissive. So this is an example of how, how physicians felt different. 31 years ago, I published the first ever survey of American physicians on this topic. And lo and behold, it said that about two thirds of them thought this is sometimes an ethical thing to do and should be available. It shocked you know, the profession. And the surveys that followed that over many years showed very similar results, fairly consistent. Uh, with tens of thousands of people surveyed. And then Oregon and Washington legalized it ahead of California. And we saw that all of the great fears about this becoming some sort of uh, slaughterhouse or something were just not true. 
And in fact, in uh, the where it was examined, legalizing this focused more attention on end-of-life care in general and improved it by some measures as well. So, you know, four years ago now, we finally got it through and had it legalized here in California. And um, I can actually post later the new issue of the medical study journal that I edit has the reports from the first ever clinical conference on assisted dying, which took place in February and over in Berkeley, UC Berkeley, sold out 300 people and was just an amazingly inspirational and really historic meeting because it would have been an illegal meeting just a few years back because it was talked about how to actually do this. So the access to that is improving, but what you're raising, Michael, is the issue is in order to get that passed anywhere, you need an extreme amount of safeguards, as they're called, um, second opinions, waiting periods, things like that. And for a disease like this one, where it comes on quickly, you're not going to have the luxury of that time. On the other side of that, too, the first screen for anybody to do this is a lethal diagnosis, a diagnosis that you're, as with hospice care, that you're not going to survive for six months. So that rules out often the people with longer term syndromes like MS or ALS who are not necessarily going to die, but are going to be in a terrible state. So there's trade-offs on this too. Some of those were political calculations you had to have. We wouldn't have gotten it passed without all of those uh, safeguards in there. But what you're raising is the issue of, uh, you know, individual freedom and agency where you can do what you want. And we have a societal control over the medications or a lot of them that are uh, best for this. So what can you do in the, in the absence of being able to fulfill the criteria for that law? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people do take this into their own hands in different ways, um, sometimes tragic ways, because uh, guns and things like that are just not the way that anybody would choose to go out given any other alternative. Um, there are underground uh guidance and sources of medications for for some of these drugs. But again, really don't want to botch it because you can end up in a worse state, you know, in a comatose state. So it's a tough one. Um, it is a tough one. Um, you know, uh, I, I've been looking into it and, and one of the languages that they use, which I don't like particularly, is rational suicide. And there are philosophers who take, you know, who actually have spent their life or thinking about it. I don't like the term, um, but I, I prefer a term like self-deliverance myself. But I know for well, myself... Very, I can, on that, there was, you know, when I was first working on this, there was a, a paper in JAMA 100 plus years ago, 1890, yeah. which called it the obstetrics of the soul. So right. Self-deliverance, yeah. Right. And James Hillman, actually, the great archetypal psychologist, wrote a, a remarkable essay on suicide in, in, in which he said, all of our work is to prevent it, but sometimes it's what the soul needs. And so, you know, it's just an interesting question. Our, our whole, uh, I haven't done this review, and I know that many religions and philosophies hold life as, hold the sacredness of life as something, you know, that, that self-deliverance is just against what we should do spiritually and in every other way. Um, but I wonder if one were to survey all the cultures of the world, uh, in what cultures that holds true and in what cultures it doesn't. Because it does seem to me, I mean, having spent the last 
35 years running retreats for cancer patients at Commonwealth, something like 220 retreats, week-long retreats. How many of those patients have gotten stashes of the meds they need to take themselves out because they, uh, they don't want to either trust somebody else to make that decision for them or um, there was a wonderful article, I think, in the New England Journal of Medicine, where a physician argued uh, for uh, compassion and dying, for helping patients die, precisely on the grounds that advances in medicine had enabled people to live far longer than they had before. As a result, they might die more difficult deaths. So he was arguing that there was a medical ethical uh, you know, uh, thing for this. So that's, that's uh, been one of the primary arguments a long time. And so, right. you know, with, with, if the, 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 the initial credo is do no harm. And the argument is, well, we're actually doing a lot of these patients more harm by denying this to them. Exactly. Uh, Jeff, John Rand just wrote, you lay it out nicely, Michael, Steve and Cynthia are our new doctors. They have so much to teach us. They are beginning to bring the mythopoetic into medicine. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't begin to believe that anybody else should think what I think. And I also don't think that my thoughts are necessarily any kind of good model for social policy. You know, that's I, I, I don't believe I know enough. But I well, do let, know let, that let for me, myself, I'm, I'm for myself, I know, and we've had this conversation, that I am very sure that I would not choose ventilation. And I uh, am also. Uh, hopeful that uh, the hospices in Marin could get me what I need within 12 hours or so. And, uh, but I would prefer to have my own ability and not rely on somebody else to make that decision for myself. And to me, that goes back to John Stuart Mill and one of the most fundamental principles of English uh, uh, medical ethics and jurisprudence which is our right to decide for ourselves what we do with our own bodies. And to me, that's a very, as you pointed out in our conversation, that's a libertarian point of view. But I think that's a really strong argument. And for me, I think that any law or rule that goes against that, there's a high burden of proof. And, and, and where I think it makes sense is if doing with our own bodies harms other people, then I think it can be argued. But if it does not harm other people, uh, I prefer to take the, uh, the risks that are authentic that go with giving us that power to the risks that uh, go with withholding it from us. That's well, a very similar argument to this made for uh, liberalization of drug laws as well. You know, exactly. Cost-benefit yeah. analysis. Yeah. But let me say something that I've, I think is, I've always been fascinated by in these debates about the right to die, is that what we're talking about is giving people agency, giving them the option to do this. And the experience uh, to date in places that have done it is that offering this to people and making it available to them. Um, and this has been my experience too, with a lot of people is saying, okay, either here it is, or I'll make it available to you when the time comes is the primary goal of what they want. They want the knowledge that they'll have this and a very high percentage, an engine. In fact, maybe the majority in a lot of places don't actually do it when the time they don't comes. use it. But it gave but them comfort. They want, 
They want that option, that power, that issue of control. So the biggest surveys that I've seen of people's fears and concerns about end of life, we always thought it was pain, you know, that the people were afraid of pain. No, they're afraid of lack of control at the end of uh, becoming, you know, just hooked up to machines, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and not having any control and just being in limbo. So I, you know, you can never do a research study on this in a real way, but I'm convinced that legalizing this for people, making it available, results in longer life and in a, a, a larger N number of years of humans living because they don't take the preemptive strike ahead of time. And if you look back to the Jack Kevorkian years, he was the figurehead in the 90s that really crusaded on this. He was a crazy and spooky guy who reminded me of uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, actually. But he did put it on the front page of papers, which is what he wanted to do. But he was taking people who were afraid of the distant future. You know, somebody with an early Alzheimer's uh, diagnosis who was so terrified of that that they would go to him and, you know, be uh, put out of life in the back of his Volkswagen van. You know, it, it was an illustration of people's fears about this. But what we see in hospice care as well, that if people are well taken care of, you know, so I'm very active physically, always have been. And I used to think, man, if I lost a leg, I'd want to die, you know, et cetera. People move those, those criteria back. Uh, hospice patients will say, if I become incontinent, I want to die. If I become blind, which was common due to CMV, retinitis, and AIDS patients, I want to die. But if they get compassionate care, they move that back and say, I can live with this. But the big variable there is that they're being well taken care of, and not everybody is. But I just, I found this argument among uh, the decision makers and, and physicians that we're actually giving people power over their own lives and will probably extend their lives. Most people said, yeah, you know, that is what seems to happen because this was privately going on. That was the other thing, kind of like with drug abuse as well, or use, it was privately happening anyway, using, uh, you know, mostly opioids and so forth. But people just didn't want to talk about it publicly. But people would say, I'll help you if it comes to that. And it usually wouldn't come to that. The person would die anyway, but they would feel much more secure about it in some way. Well, it's a profound issue, and there are casualties either way. If you do give people more agency with respect to access, uh, that means that there will be people who take their lives for reasons we don't approve of, because they were early onset Alzheimer's and were afraid of the future or whatever, So, the, uh, or b- because they're deeply depressed. To me, the most scary part of it is when young people with their lives in front of them who've just had a tragic love affair or something and want to take themselves out. And so there are endless casualties either way. So it's a very profound question. I want to shift us. uh, A number of our colleagues, Catherine Dodd says, uh, going back to COVID, the other key issue is the racial inequities and outcomes. Many people of color are more likely to have comorbidities because of their generational exposure to environmental toxins, which result in diabetes, hypertension, pulmonary disorders. They are environmental diseases exacerbated by behavior, but environmental. And I would add low-income white people, uh, you know, they uh, have exactly the same comorbidities. So I would say it's true of everyone. But then we also had someone say, what about 
COVID and climate change. And then our friend and colleague, Marion Weber, uh, raised a question which a lot of people are raising in the Che EMF listserv about the relationship of uh, COVID to the electromagnetic atmosphere and the uh, 5G. And I want to say, uh, and then my wife, Shaw Patton, who does a lot of work on toxic chemicals specifically, uh, has pointed out that PFAS chemicals uh, reduce, uh, which are extremely widespread, reduce immune response. So we know there are good studies showing that, that air pollution is uh, a significant contributor to worse outcomes. So we have climate change, we have air pollution, we have specific chemicals. We have the question of how shifting the whole electromagnetic environment affects immune function uh, in animal experiments as well as in human exposures. How do you respond to uh, these wide range of environmental contributors? Well, the, you talked, we started with disparities. And so there's a, a huge constellation of, of uh, factors that contribute to the disproportionate impact of any uh, health you know, issue in, in uh, poor uh, populations. I mean, one that wasn't mentioned is just smoking use in history, which in this case is, seems to be pretty crucial because COVID is mo first attacks and mostly attacks the lungs. And so people who are smoking anything, really, I mean, I've had to have discussions with the medical marijuana uh, people saying, you know, you shouldn't be smoking anything at this point where you're at risk of this infection because it does compromise your lungs. So you have to do it do it in a different route but tobacco has been concentrated now in the lower income communities lower socioeconomic states um no i mean it's yeah that's that's the big issue is that uh, the impact of any of these of a new infection almost always disproportionately impacts uh, people who are more vulnerable for socioeconomic reasons diabetes as was mentioned catherine mentioned by the way, Catherine Dodd is a, a nurse and a longtime friend and a healthcare guru. So she knows what she's speaking of. Um, uh, these seem to be things that make people more vulnerable to COVID as well. I do not know about 5G, really. I know that COVID is spreading lots of places, uh, particularly that don't have it. So I don't think it's a primary contributor, but if, whether it could increase vulnerability, I don't know. Um, it's possible. You know, so. I think the stronger argument would be an argument uh, that uh, the enormous man-made shift in electromagnetic fields, actually, you know, there are cases where electromagnetic fields can be used beneficially for health. Uh, but this widespread shift in exposure um, is, is, I think, very problematic. And I think that while the science on it is behind the science on chemicals, I think it will turn out to be another major contributor to human health outcome. Well, it, it brings up one of our core principles that we've talked about for many years with Che and et cetera, and environmental health is the precautionary principle. Whereas right. if you don't really know yet, but you have a strong suspicion that something is a contributor, including in particular yeah. chemicals, you try to do what you can to minimize that while the science advances, but it's, you know, it's otherwise known as the better safe than sorry, uh, you know, contributor, which in a way could bring us back to this whole discussion about the shutdown and et cetera, 
that is the principle that the healthcare people are using is better safe than sorry. We can ease off on this once we flatten the curve and that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. So it's both a chemical and a socioeconomic uh, principle, really. I want to bring us uh, to a, a subject you and I have talked a lot about, which is the relationship of, of COVID to what we call the global challenge or the global problematique or the human dilemma. And uh, an easy reference for those of you who want to go to it is um, resilienceproject.ngo. Uh, maybe, Carrie, you could uh, put that up as a link. Um, but as you know, Steve, we've been looking, others have been looking uh, at the fact that uh, COVID and the global crash aren't just, in our view, a one-off phenomenon, that uh, what they are is a poster child for the interaction of several dozen global stressors, and that these global stressors are creating more and more uh, frequent future shocks of increasing intensity. And that rather than uh, just taking this issue in isolation, that you know we just hold it off for a few years, we get vaccines and better treatments, the economy will recover and we'll go back to normal, that seems really unlikely. And that where the science is headed in major ways uh, is that we are going into an evolutionary bottleneck where we know for a fact that only a portion of biodiversity will come out of the bio bottleneck. And the question of what kind of uh, humanity will come through the bottleneck is a fundamental question. So uh, I just, uh, now we, there are four webinars that we've done on this that you can find at resilienceproject.ngo and we are as we speak migrating them over to the new school so you can find them there as well uh, but we just did one with thomas homer dixon and what he talked about uh, was how do those of us who really look at and understand the global challenge these interacting several dozen stressors which and the clear evidence that we're moving into an evolutionary bottleneck, how do we reconcile that with holding hope for ourselves and what we tell our children about what is going on? And to me, that's one of the most fundamental questions. And it, it comes up now because people are terrified of COVID and the global, and the global crash. But it seems to me the deeper question is, as these future shocks continue, and as you know, uh, Thomas Homer Dixon pointed out that the uh, evidence on uh, global surveys of attitudes and moods is that people's uh, uh, views of the future have gone way down globally. So how do we hold these, these realities, I would call them, and hold hope and know what to tell our children? Good questions. Good question. Well, yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot. So that you know, there's a list of the most likely threats and factors to the human future, um, and a pandemic is only one of them. You know, climate, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I wrestled with this a lot. I mean, personally, I wrestled with this at a young age to the point where I decided, and I was too steeped in apocalyptic thinking perhaps, but I decided not to have children. And a big part of it was that reason. And uh, uh, so I, I'm, on the other hand, I've just now in my 
extended family, two babies were born just last week. Uh, and I really wonder, I talk with some of the younger people I know, what do you think about the future? And so it takes a great leap of faith and hope, I think, to reproduce in this time. And that's not something you want to discourage. I think, though, it's an informed, it has to be an informed decision. You know, uh, what's, what do you want for this, this new child? You know, um, I think the future is daunting. We're going to go through a very uh, difficult period, or at least the world is, over the next century or whatever period of time you want to take. The next six months, I think somebody asked on here, what's the next six months for COVID? I think we've talked about that. We're going to have a big experiment of reopening various places. Some of the countries that have reopened are already shutting back down because they see a surge immediately. Smaller places like Lebanon, example, have already said, oh, wait a minute, oops, so we could have a replay of the pandemic of uh, influenza 100 years ago and start all over again. But um, that's just one thing. You know, the bigger picture is climate, which wasn't even really a big factor in the decision making for people, you know, 30, 40 years ago about whether to have kids. It wasn't brought up yet so much. It was overpopulation, pollution, war, et cetera. Um, so thinking about this in a rational way as much as possible and acting on it in some ways is, is very important. I mean, the other thing that I was going to say about contributions, whether it's, you know, giving blood or something like that personally is it's more important than ever to support the people who are really working on this, the organizations, even if you don't think that they're, you know, a hundred percent great, whether it's, you know, you name them, you know, Sierra club, Greenpeace, et cetera, et cetera. These are the kind of Bodhisattva warriors of our time that have made their careers uh, their mission, where they probably could have done something else with more reward, at least materially, have made this, you know, their mission to try to mitigate and maybe even uh, redirect our future in some ways. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. They are the Bodhisattva warriors. And what that brings up for me is the quote I love from Václav Havel about the difference between optimism and hope and how optimism is the belief that things will go well and that hope, by contrast, is a deep orientation of the human soul that can be held in the darkest of times. That's a, not an exact quote. The more exact quote is more complex, but that's the idea. And so for me, it's not that it's easy to be optimistic about the future, but that hope is the most interesting way to live, and that courage is the most interesting way to carry hope. And, and that, uh, you know, there is going to be an enormous amount of beautiful work, of courage, of, you know, everyday heroism. And there is a chance, as Thomas Homer Dixon puts it, and to me this is so important, there is a chance to build a better world out of this. We don't know how big that chance is, but if you look at, you know, the cycles of uh, of uh, breakdown and collapse and how in periods of collapse, there's actually an opening for new positive possibility. So it seems to me it's likely, almost certain, that we are in one of those periods of societal and indeed global collapse and that the courageous and hopeful thing to do is to work with all our energy for better outcomes, even in the face 
of how problematic it is. And to me, that's what in some way we can tell our children. We can say, you know, this is really difficult, but the 14th century was really difficult. You know, there have been other really difficult periods in human history, though not on the same global scale. Um, so it's just my sense that um, that's a way to live. Can't argue with that. Yeah. I agree. Well, Steve Heilig, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. And thanks to all of you who participated. I do want to ask you if you like this kind of work to uh, consider contributing, if you haven't already, to keep these going. And uh, we'll see you next Friday. Upcoming, we have uh, Rachel Naomi Remen and we have B.J. Miller. Rachel Remen is coming back. And uh, B.J. Miller is with us for the first time. And um, so there, I'm just scrolling. Here we go. Rachel Remen on June 5, B.J. Miller on June 19. But every Friday, we're here at 9 o'clock, and we hope you'll rejoin us again. Steve Heilig, thank you for friendship, partnership, and uh, for co-hosting with me at the New School. Thank you all very much for spending this morning there. We'll see you all again, I expect. Yeah. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.